0: In the early 1900s, there was revival that broke out in Wales. And as the news spread of the revival on that side of the world, it also came to to the Americas. And in 1905, we read of this amazing revival that swept through the U.S. in Philadelphia. The Methodist Church reported 6,101 new converts in trial membership. In a couple of months. Pastors in Atlantic City churches claimed that there was only 50 unconverted adults left in the city. On a single Sunday in New York City, 364 people were received into membership into the church after they accepted Jesus. And another 286 started to believe in Jesus on that Sunday. The first Baptist church in Paducah, I don't know how you pronounce that, in Kentucky, added 1,000 people to their church in a couple of months. Across the Southern Baptist Convention, they said that baptisms increased by 25% in one year. When the mayor of Denver declared a day for prayer in the city, churches were filled by 10 o'clock. At that morning, already announced. It, sorry, at ten o'clock, and churches were filling up by eleven thirty that day. Almost every business in the city closed, so that people could gather to pray in movie houses and theaters and halls and schools, and even the Colorado State Legislature closed for the day. Can you believe that to pray? One evening in Los Angeles, the Grand Opera House was filled by midnight with drunks and prostitutes that were all seeking salvation. And a similar movement occurred not only in the U.S., but also in Canada, where in urban and rural churches, people gathered together to pray, gathered together for evangelistic campaigns, and thousands of people gathered across Canada and in a city like Toronto, To meet together. And among the converts back then. In one of these meetings in Toronto. Was a young man. Named Oswald J. Smith. Who became known as. The greatest missionary statesman. Of the 20th century. This is some stories of revival. And there's so many more of them. Of times when God's spirit changed. Cities and nations. Just because he can. Because of the power of His Holy Spirit, and when I started learning about revival when I was still in high school, I would often ask, like this rhetorical question in my own mind: like, maybe I asked it to God. I'm like, why does these revivals broke out where businesses are emptied and movie theaters are filled not for people to see the latest movie, but to pray? How can it happen that bars empty and that the streets empty of prostitutes to gather together to meet Jesus? and then it ends only for the bad of the world to continue spiraling again till it gets to such a low point and then revival starts again why can't it just continue why doesn't it just last forever uh, i guess the simple answer is because we're not in heaven yet right but this is something that we're going to be talking about today is when does revival come This is our topic, our second topic in our series, Revival. Last week we spoke about what revival is. We looked at a bit of a definition for it. And today our topic is, when does revival come? When can we expect to see these great works of God in your market, in the GTA, in Canada? And we heard last week that revival is God's work, right? It's not ours. So we know that it's not something we can produce. We can't just do something and suddenly, boom, people um, start believing in Jesus. We have our responsibility. But revival is God's work. So the question is, does that mean that we just need to sit back and wait until it happens? Or do we have a responsibility as Christians... To do something active, to be in active waiting till the day of revival comes. Charles Finney said revival can happen in the church the moment that we are prepared to meet God's condition. God sends revival but we are not in an active in a passive wait as his church is hoping that maybe one day god will pour out his spirit in a way again that the that the city that we live in that the country we live in will be transformed it's not a passive waiting it's an active waiting where we say god how can we as christians align ourselves to god's conditions in order to see revival come Now, I have to make this disclaimer if you are new to Christianity or if you are still considering this. um, This is a message for us as a church family, especially I think today as well. And this is like you walking into a conversation around a dinner table when our family meets together and have a talk. But through this, I believe you will see something of God's heart for His church. And maybe you are one of those people who say like, oh, but the church... It's so bad for our society. So many bad things came out of the church. I'm going to talk about some of some of those um, data that came out of how people have started to view the evangelical church in Canada as a bad thing today and not as a good thing. So maybe you're one of the people who believe that, that the church is not good for our society. But I think through these messages, you will get a glimpse of what God truly desires for his church. And if you are a Christian... And I hope this will speak to your heart as much as it spoke to my heart that we need to meet God's condition in order to see revival come. We are going to continue reading from the book of Acts. Today, if you've got your Bibles, you can open to Acts 4. We started in Acts 2 last week. It was Pentecost Sunday, the day the Holy Spirit was poured out. We read that. We talked about revival. And today, we're continuing in Acts 4. But I first have to give you a bit of background of what happened. After Pentecost... Um, The disciples started preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. One day, Peter and John is on their way to the temple to go and pray. Because back then, the church hasn't split from the Jewish synagogues and temples yet. Why? Because Jesus came as the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting, right? So they continue to worship there. But at some point... The persecution from the Jewish side became so bad that Christians weren't able to meet there anymore. And that is when they took their own name and when they split. And, and that's how we came to be. But back in those days, they were still meeting, still praying in the temple. And they were on their way there. They saw a man that was lame. And he asked them for money. And instead of giving him money, which Peter didn't have, he said, this is what I can give you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. And the man started walking. And people saw this. And people were amazed by this. And people were like, what's going on? And we read in the Bible that Peter saw the opportunity when people started asking questions about what, is, what God is doing here. So Peter started preaching again. More people started believing in Jesus. Because this is a revival that swept across the world. And the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders didn't like this at all. So they, they arrested Peter and John. And now we read at the beginning of chapter 4, you can read that at home. Please go and read these um, pieces of Acts, these beautiful historic stories of the early church. Peter and John is in this trial where they're trying to get them to stop proclaiming Jesus. And this is what we're going to continue reading about in verse 18 to 35. They sent them out for a bit to figure out what they're going to do with them. Because they were afraid that if they act too harshly, the people would, would rebel against them. And this is then what happens in verse 18. Then they called Peter and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us... We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John is like, listen, we're not just telling you a bunch of stories. We have seen Jesus. We have heard Jesus. We have seen him die. We saw him die on a cross. We've seen him as the resurrected Lord. We have been um, blessed with this Holy Spirit. We cannot keep quiet. So after further threats, the religious leaders let them go. They could not decide how to punish Peter and John because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I love how they just throw that in just to make sure this man wasn't faking it for two weeks. He was sitting there and he's like, oh, I can't walk. And suddenly, no, he gets up. They're like, for 40 years, this man was sick. He couldn't walk. He was lame and suddenly started walking. So it was an undeniable miracle. And then verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, to the church, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When the church heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens, you made the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. When you said this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate made together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they are praying and they're recalling the events of the cross, right, of Jesus being crucified. But then this beautiful part of the prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And all the believers, one in heart and in mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That's what we're going to read, a longer part. I would have actually liked to read the whole chapter four, but it's really long. But I wanted you to see something about what happened before this prayer, then to see the prayer, and then to see the result of this prayer. Because if we go on what Charles Finney said, one of the great revival preachers, revival could come, but we have to meet God's conditions. And what I want to do is from this text today, look at three things, three signs, I think, the good side and the bad side of them, which shows us that revival, true Holy Spirit revival could be near. And the first sign, I think, that the revival could be near is when we find the church, when we see the church finding itself in really dark times. We didn't read all of it that happened before, right? But we did read this part where they threatened Peter and John and by just doing the threatening basically the whole church, right? This was a dark time for them. They were afraid. They were like, are these people going to kill us? And by the way, for years after this, Christians were killed for their faith by the Jews, by the Romans, by basically everyone that could kill them. It was a dark time. They were threatened to stop preaching. And they recall how this didn't just start now, but it started with Jesus when they they persecuted Jesus. The church was suffering, it was young, it was weak, and the world was against it. And when I'm thinking today of the church in Canada, I'm like, could the church in Canada be in similar dark days? The church in the Western world has been in rapid decline for a long time. And in a new report that came out now in 2022, they said that, It is at an all-time low that people are actually religious in Canada. They are estimating that only 7%, that there's only 7% of practicing evangelical Christianity left in Canada. 7%. The influence of the church in the West grows less less and less. Right In this survey that Angus Reid instituted this year, it's interesting that they found all... So what they did is they split the survey into two parts. On the, in the one part, they only interviewed religious people. So not necessarily that they're practicing their faith, but people who would say they belong to a religion. And then the second part of the study was non-religious people, people who didn't affiliate with any study. And this is the interesting thing. All groups surveyed viewed evangelical Christianity as more damaging to society than beneficial. Evangelical Christianity was the only religion seen as more damaging than beneficial by every other self-identified religious group. It included Muslims. It included the Roman Catholic Church. It included atheists. And I'm like, how can this be? When when our singing and our shouting and our conferences and our church services and everything, when all of that is over, my question is what impact have we made in society? This is a question that I've always asked our churches wherever we went is, if this building disappears today and this is an empty lot of land, would our community even care? This church hasn't been in this spot for 90 years, but this church is 90 years old this year. Ninety. Ten years away from being a hundred, and I'm like, if we disappear today, will the community even notice, or will they go like, "Oh, I'm so glad another church is gone. I'm so glad we can use the space for something else." See the benefit to me from reading all of this and hearing all of this is that throughout revival history. We see that revival came when the church was truly facing dark days. When the church seemed close to being wiped off the face of the earth. It happened for the early Christians. And in South Africa, my homeland, it also happened in 1860. When revival started there, before that, the church was brought in by the Dutch East Indian Company. And for all of these immigrants flowing into Southern Africa... They only had in 100. The first. Hear how crazy this is, In the first 150-year rule of the Dutch in in the Cape, only five churches were established. Five. It was all controlled by by the government, and those five churches were in a 130-kilometer radius. There were no cars. You couldn't just get to a place quickly. So most people were literally cut off from churches. My first language, Afrikaans, was seen as an unworthy language, and now most of the Europeans were speaking that was seen as an unworthy language to practice religion in. So the government forced them to do their services and the Bible reading and everything from du- in Dutch. They brought ministers in from Holland. And these people were growing more and more disconnected from their religion because they were told that their language was unworthy of worshiping God. The five churches. Almost as if, like, is there hope for this church to spread in to Africa from the South? But God had a plan, and revival started that changed the face of South Africa forever. When we read the story in Acts 4, it is clear from the prayer that the early church felt overwhelmed with what was going on, right? With the threats to Peter and John. And I want to tell you when it feels like the flame of the church is about to go out. When I hear that there's 7% of evangelical Christians left. When it feels like the flame is about to go out, that is when God steps in to help us. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the church is God's bride. It's the bride of Christ. The church is His body. We are precious to Him, so precious that Jesus died for His bride. So precious that Jesus made a promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. So Jesus made a promise that His church will stand because He loves us. And I want to tell you the first sign that revival might be near is revival comes from God as a bright light that saves the church from being drowned by darkness. So I don't know if it's dark, around, dark enough around us. Maybe it's not dark enough because we are still too comfortable because of, of um, our medical services that is really good and our wealth and our houses and the safety and security we enjoy. Maybe the church is facing darkness as an organization, but maybe for Christians individually that compr- that is what the church is made up out of, maybe we don't feel the darkness enough to truly need God to intervene. You see, Peter Lewis said, revival comes to a desperate church, not a triumphalist one. And I wonder if maybe Christians are so still so triumphalist that we can do it, that we've got control, that, that if we just shout loud enough, that government would change. By the way, a whole bunch of laws in this country already tells us that they don't care about what Christians say. But maybe we are still so drahumphal as that we don't truly need revival because we believe we can still do it on our own. The early church was like, We can't do this on our own. We need God to intervene. And the question is, if the first sign for revival is that the church is, is finding itself in dark times, that God can intervene, does it leave us again without responsibility? Does it mean we can sit back and say, oh God, it is so bad, like, we're just going to wait till one day something happens? I want to tell you no, because revival comes from God in His sovereignty, but He doesn't act without us. We have a responsibility. And the other two signs that I believe that we find that, that tells us that revival is near looks a little different. So let's talk about them. The second thing is when we know that revival is near when God's people are burdened to pray for revival. In verse 23 to 30, we read a prayer. They heard about everything that has happened. They heard about the darkness. And they're not sitting back. They're not just waiting. They're not triumphalist. They don't think they've got control of everything. They don't think they can turn things around on their own. They hear this and what do they do? They have one answer and one answer only. And that is we have to cry out to God. So they pray this powerful heartfelt prayer. They didn't wait until something happened. They felt this burden. And then they prayed about it. Selwyn Hughes says this, revival is a sovereign act of God in the sense that he alone can produce it. But, and I love how, just like the the poetry of this almost. He says, it is transported to earth on the wings of fervent believing prayer. Every revival in history, Pentecost included, began in heaven but flowed into the church across the ramp of intercessory prayer. What was the church doing when the Holy Spirit was poured out? They were in the upper room? Yes. You see, when we pray, it doesn't rob God of His sovereignty. But what it does do, it gives us back our responsibility. And what is sad to me is that a lot of research, and and the same research that was done that I just shared about, showed that a lot of Christians don't practice publicly anymore, or a lot of religious people, whatever it might be, but a lot of them also don't practice anything privately. And it is sad to me because I think a lot of Christians don't even have regular times of prayer, I sometimes struggle to just keep my focus. There are so th- many things distracting me, right? It's filled with distractions, our prayer life. And even if we get, can get past of the distractions, most of our prayer lives are just filled with selfish things. God, give me a better car or help me to be safe or do something for me. But I'm thankful that although we struggle with prayer... In dark days, God doesn't just hope that we will pray. God burdens people with this need to pray for revival. And God doesn't burden fancy people or pastors or theological professors or people that's got it all together. He uses ordinary people in ordinary settings. Who was the people praying here when this happened? They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were prostitutes. It was all of these people that, that heard the message of Jesus that turned around, that got together to pray. And there were some people who, who were well taught as well but uh, amongst them. But it didn't happen in the temple. It happened in the upper room. See, God often bypasses the big religious structures and the fanciness of everything we've got going on to make sure that we don't miss Him in the process. Because it's easy for the church to start thinking that we did it when everything comes through these doors. But no revival in history has been an official movement of the church. It has always flared up where it was least expected. One of the biggest revivals that spread through the world that included that one in South Africa started in 1847 in New York when a Dutch businessman, Jeremiah Lampierre, advertised a midday prayer meeting in his office. Six people showed up. Just the average dude. Six people showed up. In six months, six people turned into 100,000 people that prayed across New York City. In Uganda, revival broke out after one Christian walked 160 kilometers to go and ask forgiveness of another Christian that he had wronged 20 years ago. See, God sometimes bypasses our structures because he's like, I do not want you to miss me in the process. The glory is his, not ours. What do we read here? People praised God in verse 21. They didn't praise the disciples. They didn't say, oh Peter, you're such a powerful man. You're so great. You're probably the biggest blessing to the church. People were praising God. God likes to be involved in a situation where there is no doubt who is responsible for the victory achieved. He wants the world to know that it's Him. And I think that's why we read this extra part to just, I I just love how they throw it in there. For the man who was healed was over 40 years old. Make, they just want you to know this was not Peter, this was not a great doctor, this was not someone faking, this was God who did something that no one can deny. So I want to tell you today that God calls me and God calls you to pray for revival. Because revival starts with unselfish, passionate, and heartfelt prayers of His church. That's where revival starts. And what did this church pray for? So if you're like, Louis, man, I'm struggling because I'm always, I'm I'm full of stuff that I have to pray for myself. What can I pray for? Four things that this church prayed for. They prayed one for the church in crisis. We read in verse 24 when they heard about this crisis, the, the threats that Peter and John experienced, they started praying. So we pray for the church in crisis. We pray for the fact that there's 7% of evangelical Christians left. We pray for the fact that the church has lost its influence in society. We pray for the fact that there's more and more made to suppress the church. The second thing they prayed for. So one, pray for the church in Christ. Two, pray that God's will will come on earth as it is in heaven. In verse 24, they just prayed this whole part about Jesus. They recall that. But what do they say? Sorry, in verse 28. They say they did. Like all of this, even Jesus dying on a cross didn't happen by chance. But they did what your power and will had decided before the hand should happen. There is a submitting to the will of Christ even when it's hard. And as long as we don't want to sacrifice, as long as we are not willing to suffer for Christ, we will never pray in accordance with His will. Because our prayers will always go to me being glorified, me being in comfort. The third thing they were praying for is, they were praying to reach the lost. Verse 29, their first request is not, Jesus protect us. It is, Lord, consider their threats. So and know what they are saying. And then they don't ask for protection. Hear what they ask for. And enable us to speak your word with great boldness. They didn't care about the sacrifice. It was more important for them to get the message of Jesus to people who would go to hell if they died without Jesus. We've done a whole series about praying for your one every single day. If you can't pray for, the, for people that don't know Jesus yet, we're going to miss the mark. And the fourth thing that we're praying for... for the glory of God. They prayed that God would stretch out his hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. They didn't pray that so that they would get a tap on the shoulder. Oh, you're so powerful. They didn't pray that so that thousands of people would flock to a, a meeting in a tent that they were hosting. They prayed that so that what happened in verse 21 would happen again, that God would get the praises for things that only he could do. They prayed that God would be glorified through all of this. There is a difference between selfish prayers and this kind of pray, prayer. They were in crisis. They prayed for their church in crisis. They pay, prayed for God's will to happen. They prayed to reach people far from Jesus and they prayed for the glory of God to shine in the world. Salvin so Hughes uses the example Of childbirth, which is preceded by months of burden, and then at the end of the day, when birth comes with this incredible, painful suffering. That's what it takes to bring a child into this world. And if any of you are parents and you don't completely you're not completely blown away with this miracle of childbirth and how a child develops and you don't see it as a blessing from God. You need to come and speak to me. I might adopt your child then. But um, it is amazing. I told lady I maybe should become a midwife after I saw birth the first time. It is amazing. And he says, but it took burden and days of pain. And he says the birth of revival is the same thing. It will take his church It will require of us sacrifice. Probably the biggest sacrifice is our selfishness. So although revival begins with the purposes of God, it also begins in the hearts of us when we pray for God to do something extraordinary again. I want to tell you today, if we want to see all of these stats reverse in Canada, if we want to see revival in Canada, it will come through the hearts of those who have been burdened to pray for revival. The third marker that revival might be near is when the lukewarm church is willing To be set on fire again. After this prayer, there is a couple of beautiful verses from verse 32 that shows us what a church on fire lived like. These characteristics of the church that lived after this outpouring of the Holy Spirit... That happened again. Not the first outpouring of the Spirit, but he, he filled them anew, right? What I do know is this, guys Jesus is not okay with this church being lukewarm. In fact, in Revelation 3, verse 16, God spoke through John, and he's very clear that if his church is lukewarm, so if our hearts are not on fire for Jesus, he spits us out. So basically, this is what he's saying you either choose you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. But don't be a bench warmer. You're either in or you're out. There's no in between. And I think the church today is lukewarm across the Western world. The church has compromised its conviction. The church has avoided suffering by compromise. And just if you sit here and you're like, Oh, Louis, should we shout a little harder? Should we wave banners? Should we shout a little more? I want to be like, no, that's the first mistake you're making. Because your life should be the challenge and not just your words. See, we get squeezed into this mold of the world instead of allowing Scripture to be our standard. And I want to show you a couple of things that happens in a church that is on fire. One, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And for some reason my notes are gone, so let's do this, okay? From the heart. That just disappeared of my iPad, nice. All the believers were one in heart and mind. The first signal was they were unified. There was unity in the church. One of the main ways that the devil attacks families, Christian families, that he attacks the church is to create disunity. Because Jesus said a house divided itself cannot stand. So one, if you've got an issue with someone in the church, you make like that Ugandan man, you walk your 160 kilometers to go and apologize and you sort your nonsense out. Because that's what God asks of us. But two, if you're one of those people who love to find fault with every other church, it's not part of our group, I also want to tell you, go and sort out your heart. Because revival has always broken out throughout different denominations. It has led to the start of different denominations. And when we think that the way that people practice solid faith in Jesus, if we think that is a reason for division, that it has been over the years, then we are more like the Pharisees than the disciples. The songs we sing, the way we dress, the buildings we meet in, doesn't make you a follower of Jesus or not. What makes us a follower of Jesus is if we're following Jesus. Because the early church wasn't all about theology. They didn't write books. They didn't talk about theology all day long. What did they do? They practiced scripture and they lived it out in the world in such a way that people started following Jesus. So whether it's in this church, or whether it's with other believers, you're going to worship with them in heaven one day if you know Jesus. So you need to sort out your own heart if you've got issues with other Christians. But the second thing we read about is that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. These guys didn't wonder if it's okay to talk about the religion with their friends or with their work colleagues. They talked about their faith with great power. They weren't afraid of the cultural norms. They weren't put in a box. They were threatened for the laughter. They were like, "I'm still going to talk about Jesus. Who am I going to follow? Jesus or you? Is that simple?" That is a church that's not lukewarm where we are on fire to testify to the world that doesn't know Jesus no matter the cost. And what is so beautiful to me is it says, and God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. You see, without grace, we can't powerfully testify about Jesus because then we will be like the Pharisees who just tell people how bad they are and how good we are. And Jesus hated self-righteous people. He told a parable in Luke 18. It's that to them To those who thought that they were okay with God because of how they acted. And he told this parable of a tax collector. (sighs) That goes on his knees. Beats his chest. And says... God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. That was his prayer. The grace of God empowers us to look past people's mistakes and past their brokenness and past the messiness of their lives and see the workmanship that God has created in them. And lastly, there were no needy persons amongst them for They sold what they had. Not everything, but from time to time it says they sold stuff. They put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And this doesn't mean that you have to go and sell all your stuff to hand it out. What does this mean? The only way for us to see the needs of others is when we are not totally consumed with ourselves and our own needs. The only way to help others is when we are not totally consumed with our own problems. These people, because their eyes were on Jesus, their eyes were away. Their eyes were not on themselves. So when we truly love Jesus and when we truly follow Jesus, it saves us from our own selfishness and it helps us to look past all of our needs and all of our ones and see the needs of this world so that we can help others in need. That is a church alive with purpose and with passion. So when will revival come? When the church is going through dark times, maybe like today. And God has to step in to save us. Two, when the church is truly burdened and starts praying for revival. And we don't have to organize a whole bunch of prayer meetings It comes when people are burdened for prayer. It just happens by itself. And three, when we are tired of being okay with being lukewarm. When we're like this, just doing this every week and this is where it ends. When we say like, this is not okay. I'm not fine with this, I want more. I want this unselfishness. I want this passion for people who don't know Jesus. And I want to pursue unity with all I have. Unity in the church of Christ. When we say that is our heart, then revival will come. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you so desperately we might not be threatened daily with our lives with that of our children but we have already been threatened with so many other things but we've slowly given up one by one and we need you to sweep across this country, across this church your church and bring revival to breathe new life to that which is dying. Jesus, I pray for every person who walked onto these grounds yesterday. I pray that they would have experienced the love of Jesus in such a tangible way that they would seek you out. I pray, Jesus, for everyone in this building that we will not be okay with being lukewarm, but that you will ignite a fire in our lives that burns passionately for you. Do something only you can do, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.